This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Judah Pollock. Judah is an author, professional speaker, and strategic advisor on the art of leadership and the science of breakthrough thinking. He is former faculty at Stanford Stardex and an established instructor for the U.S. Army's Red Team Leadership Curriculum at the University of Foreign Military and Cultural Studies. A founding partner at Riverine Leadership, he has spoken at Stanford, Google, Airbnb, Genetech, and is a regular guest lecturer at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Judah, thank you so much for joining us today. I I really appreciate it. I guess for the benefit of the audience, I first got when you came on my radar was one of your earlier books that you wrote. Could you maybe go into a little bit of detail on how you got into learning about charisma and what that looked like? Yeah. So Olivia Pox Caban, who's actually the author of The Charisma Myth, I very often get mistaken as a co-author for that one because we wrote a later book together, but we have collaborated tremendously on charisma as a, a topic I really came about from not having any. <laughs> so I think for people for whom it's just natural, it just feels like a second skin, second nature. What's the problem? And for those of us who don't come by it naturally, it seems like a very mysterious experience, a mysterious power. I sometimes joke that in science fiction very often, the great mysterious all-encompassing force of the universe is always something like love or charisma, or the ability to emotionally move people in some way. And I feel like for me, as a, as a young person, that was very much the case. I was like, how do people do this? Coming back from school in summer, how did everybody get the memo about what we were wearing now? What was cool now? <laughs> how did that happen? And it's being built the way I was like, let me study this. Let me see what this is. And when you turn around and start to break things down that at first look mysterious, it's amazing how often you can find, oh, there are just certain very specific pieces to it. And charisma just was one of those topics for me about how does this work? How do people interrelate? Yeah. It's one of those terms that's really hard to get your arms around, frankly. It's tough to define. I like your idea of just being able to move people or you have a certain gravitas yeah. or there's something about you that seems to motivate people to take action. But it's a hard term to define. But it gets thrown around quite a bit. It does. And charisma is really just, it's, if you think of the idea that we are social beings, we are pack animals, we do things together. Charisma is the capacity to get people to come along with you. 
to get them to get the path to be like, that is a good idea. Let's do what you're saying. And then what are those elements that actually make that occur for people that make them trust you? What were the kind of high level, big takeaway findings there after you did your homework? I really appreciate the way Olivia broke it down, which is into this three part piece, which is power, presence, and warmth. And the idea is that you really need a combination of the three, because if you have power, but you have no warmth, that's scary. If you have power and warmth, but you lack presence, there's, there, people can sense like that there's something missing, that it's inauthentic. If you have presence and warmth, you're very, people love having you around, but they're not going to take you seriously when things get serious. So it's this idea of being able to own a certain level of power, to be very present in the now with the other person, that this isn't just all about me, that I am connecting to you as well. And then the warmth is that this power that you're feeling in, in our connection was it good for you. And I care about you. I want to connect with you. And when you put those three together, that's when you find people will come along and be like, I want to be around you. I like your vision. I want to see what your vision is. And it, this is a timely conversation. One of the things I wanted to get your take on, you wrote that, you helped write that book. You did that work a number of years ago. We now seem to be in the fallout of a cycle where financial industry folks and political people really leveraged charisma full on during these animal spirits of the last bull run. And now we're seeing kind of the fallout of it in terms of we're entering into a new election cycle. We've got SBF and all of these other kind of bad actors who were able to leverage a lot of what seemed to be at the time charisma. What's your kind of broader take on that whole experience, especially given your perspective on things. This is the fascinating thing about the economic world, right? Is economics a science or not? It's a great question. And the behavioral economic economists coming in and being like, let's stop with the rational actor thing. Who is a rational actor? That's insanity. Is it, so is economics the science of the irrational? Or there, there do seem to be, it, it's the science of the irrational at an individual level. But then when you start to get into patterns of large numbers, we can find that it is a science. It's sort of like for those who are fans of the book's foundation, right? Kind of psychohistory. I can't tell you what's going to happen to any one individual, but I can tell you over the long haul what's going to happen to humanity. And so in times of that much excitement, excess money to be made, there are these people who can come in and take advantage. And what's interesting, so let's take SBF, for instance. By all accounts, this is not somebody who has a lot of charisma personally. But there was a way in which crypto as an industry had charisma, especially as it started to take off. And then we all get interested in that. So charisma doesn't necessarily have to be the quality of an individual. We can live in charismatic times. There can be charismatic industries. There can be charismatic stocks, literally, like charismatic opportunities. And I think, so if you think of crypto that way, and I know it's a very complex topic and there's a, I'm not, I, I don't come down like, oh, it's all a scam. I also don't think it's a panacea. I think it's just really interesting. But if you look at what happened to crypto when it took off, and there were a lot of people in the crypto world who were not happy about the boom because they were like, no, we're trying to do something very real here. This is about the blockchain underneath. This is about the safety of our money, right? This is about a new technology for a digital world. It's not just about everybody getting rich as fast as they can. But if you look at what happened to in the boom of crypto itself was charismatic. And I think that when it comes to doing something around your money, charisma is actually a very dangerous thing and something you have to look out for because to sound like Warren Buffett, right? Nine times out of 10, really making money is boring. Takes a certain amount of patience, certain amount of wisdom, certain amount of risk tolerance, good amount of due diligence. When it gets charismatic, it, it, it's easy to get caught in that. Same with the Robin Hood GameStop stuff. But we should probably take a step back and think for a moment. Right. It, I certainly don't know the details, but, you know, Broadly speaking, it, it seems like there were people like SBF and others who were opportunistic and took advantage of these, I like your term, charismatic times, right? These bull markets. And he was able to 
glom on to the crypto craze as well as effective yeah. altruism. And he right. he captured a lot of these movements that maybe themselves on an underlying basis are not pernicious or evil, but he was able to use them for his own purposes. So I think those are really good examples. Yeah. And, and effective altruism is also a great example. I get in so much trouble when I talk about it. So I probably shouldn't <laughs> have looked when you no, said you should, it. Go. I've been at like small conferences, like invite only conferences and people talking about effective altruism. And I'm always like, it, it's a nice theory to make you feel better about maybe having done well and having wealth and maybe feeling like you're having a greater impact and trying to alleviate a certain level of guilt. But in terms of its actual effectiveness, which is funny, they put it right in the name, but in terms of its actual effectiveness, if you've ever gone deep into philanthropy, deep into social good, if you've ever been in the developing world and seen some of these organizations at work, it's far more complex than just give them a lot of money. So it, it's another kind of effective altruism, I would say, is a charismatic theory that's really caught on, but doesn't necessarily speak to a true solution. Right. Yeah. But again, like politics, sometimes it doesn't matter. It's, it's a great theory. That's right. It's a shiny theory. It makes a ton of sense. And it makes me feel great if I'm the person making a lot of money who wants to do something good with it and not feel whatever I might feel around the level of inequality going on, which is a hard thing to engage with right now. Yeah, very hard. So we just jumped right into it, but how did you get into this work? You do, you're a writer, you're a consultant, you're a coach, you're a speaker. I was having trouble figuring out how to introduce you, frankly, just because you have 10 different jobs. I appreciate that. Yeah, I sometimes people will come up to me like, how did you get into this line of work? And I'm like, I am not the person to ask. And I'll be really honest here. I met a guy at a rave in San Francisco and we started talking. And then he was like, hey, I have this thing with the army. I want you to come teach at it. And I was, in, I thought he was crazy, but it turns out he did. And I started doing work with the military and it went really well. And that was more around uh, personal awareness, Enneagram, Jungian stuff and leadership and how that can help. And then it's funny once you, people have, are either ambivalent or negative towards the military in non-military circles. But if you work with them, it actually has a lot of cachet from a career point of view. It's a funny kind of paradox. And so that then led, since I lived in San Francisco at the time, that led to a lot of work with tech and technology, where of course, charisma is a very big um, topic because you have a lot of people who have reached a certain level of success that ordinarily you could not have reached if you didn't have some level of charisma. And yet these are people who through their technical prowess and opportunity are able to reach high levels of leadership and have no charisma whatsoever. And so that became a, a kind of interesting union. And, and then people would ask, oh, can you give a talk? Or, oh, can you facilitate this? Or, oh, I have an individual issue. And I didn't know enough to say, no, that's not what I do. I didn't know enough to really focus or niche. And I just kept saying yes, because to me, it's just all interesting. And then it, one thing led to another. And from where I sit, no matter what you're doing, if you're giving a talk, if you're facilitating, if you're coaching, if you're doing full, big OD work, it's all the same concept. It's just at scale, right? The dynamics are always the same, whether those dynamics are happening inside a single individual, they're happening amongst the team, or they're happening across the org. There's a fractal element to it at scale. It's the same dynamics. They just get smaller, big. Okay. So when I first thought about this conversation, I was going to start by asking you to define what a fractal is. <laughs> because it's in your intro and your bio. And I always think it's fascinating when people are able to bridge these two worlds, right? You talked mm -hmm. about is economics a science or is it behavioral? Is it social study? Right. And you're usage of fractal within your work yeah. seems to also bridge some interesting subject matters that you wouldn't naturally associate with each other necessarily. Well, I've, I've always been, not always, but once I learned about it, I've been fascinated by the concept of scale and the patterns of scale. And there are things called power laws. Jeffrey West of the Santa Fe Institute has a fascinating book about power laws and growth. And that there are, there do seem to be mathematical laws to how things get bigger. And fractals, if you look in nature, they, it seems to be the dominant geometric law 
And what a fractal is, it's an illustration of a complex number. I'm going to pretend I know what that means. I don't. That's its technical <laughs> definition. But what a fractal is, it's a pattern, a very small pattern that repeats itself over and over again. So no matter how big, how much perspective you have on a fractal or how micro deep you go into the fractal, it looks exactly the same. So it's almost disorienting to play with because you don't know, am I looking at it from a galaxy point of view? Or am I looking at it from an atomic point of view? From the point of view of the pattern, the fractal stays the same. The reason I use it as an analogy here is that if I work with an executive team and I see what the dynamics are like, I can then make a fairly accurate prediction as to the dynamics out throughout the organization because those dynamics are going to repeat all the way down. Similarly, if you want me to work with a team that's mid-level and I see what the dynamics are like, I can make a fairly accurate prediction of how the leadership team is operating. Because whether or not it's explicit, whether or not it's even fully conscious, these patterns of behavior are moving through the organization. And that's one of the interesting things as well from an economic point of view when you look at behavior, like behavior of masses of people. You will see this. I, I have a client, and we talk a lot about this, how why do financial crashes so often happen in October? Why do they happen in the fall so often? And the theory is he put it to me, which I just, I have no idea if there's any truth to this. But I find it fascinating from a pattern point of view is that, so things are looking a little rocky and people start to hedge. They start to put the brakes on. And when they put the brakes on, it settles everything, right? The system holds. And then summer comes along or maybe it's an early spring and it's warm and people start to get it okay. And they start, oh, things are looking up. And then maybe things start to get better in the market. And then everyone starts to pull back from their hedged positions. They don't want to lose out. Everything starts to get good again, but the defense mechanisms are gone. Everything's good in the summer. You have your harvest and then it's getting into mid to late October. Winter is setting in. And for whatever reason, like something clicks and then there's the panic and the drop. And so that's another, that's a, that's like a fractal pattern where people have noticed, oh, this keeps happening. I was watching the market kind of start to dip right as October came in this. And I was like, uh oh, is this the one? I have no idea, right? We could sail right through. We seem to have managed the soft landing or the house of cards comes down around us. But watching the patterns is always a fascinating pastime for me. And it's not like I want to be right or I want to be wrong. It is about learning the pattern itself. We're recording this on October 1st, so I get, or 2nd rather. So I guess we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find soon out. Enough. Yeah, we'll find out soon enough. That's interesting theory. So, would the fractal anal analysis um, or analogy be comparative to when people talk about a company's DNA? Yes. The DNA that they're talking about is the foundational pattern, it's the smallest part of the fractal. And if you understand the company's DNA, then just like in a human being, you can go to any part of that company and be like, oh, this is why you're behaving this way. This is why you're reacting this way. So have you seen commonalities on a consulting basis or coaching basis of fractals or DNA that portend to be successful versus not? No. You can be more innovative or not. You can have people who are happier or not clearer communication or not. And all of these things may lead to greater success or lesser success, but it's such a complex system that, you know, I'm sure so many people who are listening to this have had this experience. You can be involved in such a dysfunctional organization that is still incredibly successful, almost in spite of itself. And, and then you can be involved in these organizations where everybody's happy. It's going, you, know, they, you love coming to work, you love your coworkers, but no one's willing to make the hard decision. And therefore you can't seem to adjust in time or adapt in time or really get this place to, to function in the way that it should. So most of the time, like all, like all families, pretty much every organization is dysfunctional to a certain extent. Mm. And so what learning the DNA is really about is trying to help them move into a more functional space, a more functional way of making decisions, a more functional way of taking responsibility, a more functional way of actually communicating with one another, stopping back channeling, one of those fascinating things about back channeling, and I love doing this exercise, is you take a bunch of note cards and you tell everyone, write one thing that you're not planning on saying in this room, but you're totally going to back channel in the next hour when this meeting's over. Whoa. And it's anonymous. So you write it down, you fold it in half, you put it in the middle of the table, you mix it all up, 
Everybody takes a card. You're like, okay, read your card out loud. And it's amazing. You can have 15, 20 people in the room. There's going to be like two to three themes, which means everyone's on the same page and no one's talking. Now there's something going on in the DNA that causes people to keep that to themselves. And part of what you want to do is shift that. So it's, we, we should be talking about this. If you're all thinking it, but you're not saying it, that's a problem. And so maybe we should get this out in the room. Now you, there you run into the problem, of, even if it's already out in the room, whatever the DNA issue is, dysfunction is, it's still holding people back from saying anything. And usually if you're me, you're looking around the room and you're like, so who's the executioner in this room? Who's the leader that everybody's, they're going to kill me if I say anything. Interesting. God, that must be fascinating to hear what people say on those pieces of paper. It's, I, I highly recommend this. You don't need a facilitator to do this. It is fascinating exercise. Yeah. Another really interesting one is to, uh, you, split, you split the group into two, ask one group to write down what are high status behaviors in the organization. And ask the other group to write down what are low status behaviors in the organization. And two really interesting things always come out of it. One, it's how quickly everybody knows even though this has never really been made explicit, it takes five minutes and you've got this long list. The other fascinating thing is depending on the DNA, the craziest things wind up in high status and low status. Like I remember one group, it was low status to be detail oriented. And I was like, how's that working out for everybody? And of course, like we're frustrated all the time. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. So I don't want to skip around too much, but to go back to the rave yeah, yeah, and the work you did with the military, that was what would be referred to as red team leadership yes, development? Yes, exactly. Or, okay. Could you describe what that is? So really, it's a deep dive into what makes these leaders tick. So the military is an incredibly powerful, it's an incredibly powerful culture people really try and adapt themselves to it. And when I first went in to do the work, someone who had worked with the military for a long time was like, oh, they're all the same. They're all detail-oriented. They're all service-oriented. They're all traditionalists. They're all risk-averse. And he just kept going. I was like, okay. And I went in and used a very different form of assessing them and really gave them a lot more leeway. And what came out was, from a behavioral point of view, um, a cognitive diversity point of view, the military is just as diverse as the rest of the country or any organization. You've got people from all different points of view who come into the military. They've all, in order to succeed, they've all learned how to mimic the culture, but they don't act on that all the time. They recognize how to shift, but they, nobody would talk about it because everybody was just trying to get in alignment with the culture. So we were, what we were able to do was get everyone to recognize, okay, so there's this way that you act because it's the cultural expectation. And the reason it's so powerful in the military is because they're like, if you don't do this, someone's going to die. But there's the cultural expectation in the way you act. And then there's your natural orientation. And your natural orientation and the expected orientation are in a constant dynamic with each other when you're a leader in the military. And from that point, Everyone was able to start to see what can you bring from your natural orientation that will actually improve your leadership and therefore make the military more effective as opposed to trying to put it away and just staying in line with what is expected of you. And while it's, it's a more pronounced and well-defined difference in the military, any organization you work in has that. There's an expectation of how you're going to show up, right? Especially depending on how powerful the main leader is, the CEO, let's say. Sometimes you'll go into an organization, you'll give them an assessment and everyone tests out exactly like the CEO. And you're like, okay. We'll break this theme. down for a second, there's shall a we? Here. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success, which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, 
family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at www.macinternational.com. Interesting. So I I guess what motivates you to get into these other areas? Like we talked about charisma, we're going to get into your most recent book, which is fascinating. Do you use your consulting work as like a top of the funnel for ideation? I'm curious how you think about what you're actually going to dive deep into considering you're touching a lot of different areas. I am... It's part of the pattern interest. So I'm interested in multiple topics and seeing how they interrelate, how they interconnect. I'm that person who loves to brainstorm. And I refer to people like me as monkeys in the brainstorm. We're just jumping from branch to branch, to tree to tree. Then there are, there are other people in the brainstorm like Beaver. Are we building a dam? When are we getting to building the dam? And people, the monkeys, someone like me drives them crazy, um, which is why you don't see me on the inside. A lot of people who are consultants, executive coaches are more like this. They're like, oh, I'm interested in all these various different things, which is why I can't really survive internally. Hmm. But what I love to see is I love to see the way that they interrelate, the way that each piece of information, each dynamic, each new point of view helps me understand the whole in a new way or in a deeper way. And from there, I'm able to help people more. I'm able to be faster with my job. Over the years, as I've done this, the the speed at which I'm able to diagnose something and then say, oh, why don't you do it this or do that? Or why don't you bring this other element in has increased because by being able to keep looking at all these different industries, different levels and different topics of interest and how the brain science connects to that, it's allowed me to pattern that much faster. So what motivates you for this most recent book? This was something that just kept coming up. So again, at the time living in San Francisco, innovation is the thing, right? Everybody's trying to innovate all the time. And how do we do it? In a similar way to charisma, actually, people think that innovators are born and that you just have that brain. And what I was finding was, as I talked to people, there were, again, themes that kept coming up. There were tools, there were habits that people who are innovative had naturally fallen into. And discovered. And so I looked at those tools and habits and I was like, I will bet you that there's some kind of brain science around this, that there's a way in which people's brains are wired or that they've wired them. Because from the point of view of neuroplasticity, we can actually rewire our brains and the way that we look at things, the way that we think. And as I started to do the research, it turned out that there, there was a decent amount of research on how innovation or creativity works in our brains and what the networks are. And so from there, when, you, when you're dealing with such soft, amorphous work as I am in, the minute you can find brain science to support it, you just jump off of it. You're like, I'm right. not making it up. Look, there's something real here. And it just, it, it, it rolled from there. Obviously, I'd encourage people to read the book, but what's the takeaway? How do you have these breakthrough ideas or breakthrough thinking or is there, I hate the term hacks, right? Yeah, it, are there things that you can make yourself predisposed or there are settings that yeah. you can go into that facilitate this type of thinking? A lot. The first thing is you have to get out of your head that you're not that kind of person. You're the story that you tell yourself. Exactly. So if you tell yourself that you know, I'm not an innovative person, I'm not a creative person, you're toast. And the thing to recognize about this is very similar to charisma is, yes, some people are born with a natural orientation to this. But the ones who are successful actually do break it down into a science and use tools and habits. So what you'll notice with people who are very innovative is they recognize that they have to take breaks. They recognize that they have to take naps. They recognize that they have to sleep. One of the reasons for this is because that's when the most creative network in our brain turns on. When we're focused, the most creative network in our brain kind of goes to sleep, does its own thing over here. When we're not focused, all of a sudden, that part of our brain that's connecting disparate ideas and new things, that comes alive. So think about the shower moment. Why in the shower? Because you're not really thinking about anything. And, and this is very hard for us in a highly productive society 
to say that you're going to get your, your most innovative, creative ideas when you're purposefully not being productive. And that's a big hurdle for people to get over, just like napping. So we know that the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states, which are when you're falling asleep and when you're waking up, we know these are huge moments for breakthroughs. Naps, which the science says don't nap for more than 10, 15 minutes, anything more than that, and it's counterproductive. But a 10, 15 minute nap, which is mostly falling asleep and waking up, gives you this moment in the middle of the day to aggregate all the new stuff that you've learned that day and piece it together into novel shapes to see if something comes out of it. And yet you can put all the napping pods in your office you want. People don't nap because we have to go back to behavioral. There's a social status element to it. No, you should be working all the time. There's a huge cultural component to that in America, right? Exactly. To go back to your first part, like you are the story you tell yourself, makes me think about two things. One, James Clear and Atomic Habits about thinking not so much, what should I do if I want to be a writer, but what would a writer do every day, right? They'd get up, they'd have their area prepared, they'd have a regimen, they would carve out their time to write. And so if you can mimic that, you would become it, right? As opposed to saying, I'm not going to be a writer. Absolutely. So much of being human is in the doing, right? Just start doing a thing. And it's amazing how much better we become in the military. One of the first things that ever I ever really learned was when they'd start telling stories about some of their experiences. And I'd be like, I could never do that. And they just look at me and go, sure you could. It's just the training. It's the costume you put on. It's the... But also they just, you do and you do, and it changes your brain. It literally changes your brain. And in that change comes your capacity, your new capacity. And I think there's a way in which we think of our brains as fixed. And they're not. We just get out of shape. That's how I sometimes describe it. It's like we become neuro couch potatoes as we get older, right? When we're younger, we're very creative. We're very, because we're learning all the time and everything's new and we're running around all the time. We have free time and all this stuff is going on. And then we just start to drive home from work the same way every day. We start to eat the same things. We watch the same shows. We listen to the same political leanings. We read the same style of books. It just gets old, right? We stop listening to new music, right? Every time I go over, I'm about to be 50 and I go over to a friend's house and they're like listening to Billy Joel. And I'm like, it's not, I nothing against Billy Joel. I don't want to get any hate mail from Billy Joel lovers. But what about the new music? Because when you listen to new music, what you're, it's literally like a workout for your brain. Your brain has to make sense of this new thing it's hearing. And in trying to make sense of it, it has to build new neural connections, which means you get stronger at building new neural connections. And if you want to have a brand new idea, that new idea has a physical corollary in your brain. It is a new set of neural connections. But if you can't build new neural connections, you can't have a new idea. Literally cannot have a new idea. And you think even in terms of our relationships with our spouses, if you can't build new neural connections, you can't really see who your spouse has become, who they are now. All you can do is like, well, you're not who you were. And then we get into huge problems in our relationships because we can't physically build the neural connections to see this other person. Yeah, you talk about these kind of internal blocks that occur that we are self-imposed oftentimes. I was reading this morning in a newsletter that I get that, Apparently, Deion Sanders, when he was in high school, was like huge introvert, and he just likes to fish alone. If he had his way, he'd just fish by himself. And they told him on the recruiting trail, like, nobody cares how good you are to an extent. You've got to sell yourself if you want to make it. And so he came up with an alter ego of primetime. And so now he like will put on the primetime outfit and do the deal, but when he's not, He's just this like really quiet guy, which I thought was just mind blowing. You just assume this guy woke up, jumps out of bed with this whole persona, but it's not true. And you'll see the, you'll see this a lot amongst people where they create a separation between the thing they need to be out in the world and who they really are. The movie stars who survive them, like the Tom Cruises of the world, the Julia Roberts's of the world, George Clooney's, they do something really intelligent, which is they separate out themselves as a person from this incredibly valuable product they control called Tom Cruise, the movie star. And that's how they don't go crazy. 
they recognize it's this thing that they've created, but it's over there, like prime time. And the people who get in trouble fall apart from drugs, vanity, being arrogant, pompous. They don't make the separation. And they think they are this thing. And then they have to put all their energy into maintaining it and they spin out. And I think it's an incredibly powerful thing for everybody to recognize, yes, you want to be yourself, you want to be authentic. But at the same time, if you're being a leader or you're just being a leader in your community, whatever it might be, there's a recognition that there's a difference between who I am in my house with my family or by myself and the slight shift I need to make when I go out into the world. And it, there's, no, there's no paradox there. There's no contradiction there. It's not being inauthentic. You're not faking it. It's just a very natural human adaptation to living in a large group. So you have some incredible articles and I urge people, we'll provide a link to your website for people to check it out. But I'd love to just go through some of them just very briefly, if you could touch on them. Because what you are talking about in this book, it makes you think that brainstorming with in a group is, you would think that's a good thing, right? You think that this is how breakthroughs occur. But would you want to comment on what your findings have been along those lines? <laughs> yeah. Brainstorms, the way they're run traditionally, really create a, a system of group think. The most charismatic person tends to win out. Somebody grabs the one pen, so they all of a sudden become the gatekeeper to what idea gets up on the board. And introverts drop out pretty quick because it's exhausting. And then other people are like, they're reading the status in the room and what they think would be the most effective for their career in terms of who they are agreeing with. So, so what should be an open-ended, what's the best idea process turns into a very political process. And this idea that we're all just supposed to get in the room, shout things out, and something good's supposed to come out of that really misses the, the, the opportunity where you need structure in order to truly liberate ideas. And I think that's another kind of counterintuitive idea that people might push against. But without structure, it just, it, it, it becomes Thunderdome of ideas. And that's not going to get you what's most effective because very often the person, someone who has the best idea or the two or three people whose ideas need to come forward in order to be combined, they may not have the most power in the room. They may not be extroverted enough to push through to get their idea out into the space. There may not be the time to really think about and negotiate those ideas to see what, where they're coming from. Because anything new, anything innovative, it's going to take a moment for everyone to get their heads around it. And traditional brainstorming, because it lacks all structure, there's no time. One of the most important things to do in brainstorming is have silence. Let people collect their thoughts. Then say, okay, where are we? Let's talk move it through. Another great thing to do is be like extroverts or anyone who's spoken in the past 10 minutes, quiet, no talking. Anyone who has not spoken in the past 10 minutes, please share your ideas. And no one's allowed to say anything for two minutes, which feels like forever, but no one's allowed to say anything for two minutes until these other people bring their ideas forward. That actually gets more creativity into the room than a no holds barred. Hey, just say what you got to say. Give everyone a pen right? Open the brainstorm in silence. Everyone has a pen. The topic is put forward. And then anyone who wants to go up and write a thing can go up and write a thing. And then after five minutes, you can all step back. Okay, what's up on the board? What are we seeing here? What seems to be coming forward? It's, it, and, and very often, some of the most creative ideas come from lower down in the organization because those are the people at the front. Those are the people engaging with the problem. And yet, if you put them in a room with their superiors, they might not say anything. And this becomes a, this is a classic where the most innovative ideas are coming from that middle level or, or even below, and they can't find a pathway up. They just get stuck. But we're trapped in these really old paradigms. I mean, the way we brainstorm nowadays, I think it was invented in the 50s. We're like, why are we still doing that? That's crazy. And yet well, it yeah. persists. We're not taking naps either. So. Yeah. We're not always following the science. What has it done in your life? Have, has it changed anything about how you ideate or structure your day or think about coming up with new potential yeah. topics to dig into? Absolutely. One thing is anything creative has to happen in the morning or late at night. 
I don't know why those are the two, but in the morning is because that's when your brain is freshest and the day hasn't attacked you yet with your emails and whatnot. Late at night for me tends to work because everything's so quiet. And it's just, oh, it's just me and this. Oh, this works. This works. And you can get into a, a state of flow. It's tough because if you have to wake up early the next morning for anything, but that can be really potent. Um, putting an idea in my head before I fall asleep to see what my brain will give me in the morning. That's been a really powerful one, as well as keeping a notebook by my bedside so that if I wake up, I can write it down because those things tend to be fleeting, even when they're really good and powerful. And then you're all day like, what was that, that idea? What was that idea? And you're driving yourself nuts. So just having the notebook there, that's been really powerful for me. Walking is like such a magic silver bullet for, for your health. There's so many things walking is good for because really we evolved walking across the savannah to find food. Like it's what we, it's what we do. There's so many benefits to it, but it's also, it, it's just the right amount of movement to oxygenate your brain without depleting you of any oxygen. And so it becomes an incredibly powerful creative mode. And especially if you walk in nature or if you take a route you haven't taken before. So you're looking around at things. And that's one of the keys too. When you go, when you take this walk, when you sleep, put the idea in your head, focus yourself on that idea for a couple minutes. And then don't focus on it. Go walk somewhere you haven't walked before and really look around at everything new because it's all of that new that's going to trigger the creative coupling and then bring something you hadn't thought of before forward. And, and so there, there's this discipline that I've had to learn around the creative act. And we very often think of creativity as being the antithesis of discipline. That somehow it's about, no, I need to be free and open to just do whatever I want. But actually, there's a tremendous amount of discipline. I think that's always the funny paradox around like rock stars is they're, they're, they're living this life. But in order to get as good as they've gotten at their instruments, they've had to have a lot of discipline. They've had to practice and practice and practice. And in that practicing, they've become masters. Yeah, it's almost always the really boring work that's monotonous that it's like James Clear says that your superpower is just what you don't mind doing a million times. <laughs> that most people would just say, F this, I'm out, I'm not going to yeah. do this. It's not necessarily you have this extraordinary ability. You just don't mind doing it over and over and over again. Exactly. And if it's a physical thing, what's happening actually by doing it over and over again or the physicality of 10,000 hours is that you're, the neuron that runs or the nerve that runs from your brain to, let's say, your fingers to play guitar and it connects to your fingers through this protein scaffolding, it gets that nerve's ability to send a message and that protein scaffolding that connects to your fingers, that gets stronger and stronger so that you are actually able to tell your fingers what to do with more precision. That's, that's the, that is the neural underpinning of why physical practice makes you so good at something. Now, if it's something mental, what you're doing is you're building the patterns. You're literally building a library of patterns because our actual raw horsepower in our brain starts to decline, I think around 30, maybe a little younger, something like that. But we get better and better anyway because we're patterning. So we're quicker to recognize things. We can understand what things are faster. And mm -hmm. so the kind of intellectual equivalent of learning to play the guitar is in thinking new thoughts, learning new things, seeing new patterns over and over again, we build a library of patterns represented through neural connections and neural loops that we can access to understand new systems, that we can access to understand changes in the world and be like, oh, this is happening. Oh, that is happening. And it's a similar idea of practice. It's just a different style of practice. It's practice in thinking as opposed to practice in doing. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. And the walking thing is something that I've been working on a lot over the yeah. last few months. And I read somewhere that, to your point about this ancestral development, but apparently the average Amish person walks 14 miles a day. So that's, even if you don't want to go that far back, if you just want to go turn the clock back 200 years, 300 yeah. years, that's about what... and they're doing their daily chores and they're walking yeah. to and from, et cetera. And that's a full day for them is about 14 miles. Yeah. That's amazing. So we've really lost a lot of that, right? In our sedentary lifestyles. Yeah. And it's amazing um, when you go and you look at the number of the moments of breakthrough that have happened while in motion, especially in science. It's crazy. Aristotle's Academy, they were known as the peripatetics because they walked and talked all the time. 
but you've got a Nikola Tesla coming, getting an image of his AC motor while walking across a town square with his friend. I, I won't bore you, but it goes on and on. The number of people that have had these moments. Of, oh, while moving. Darwin had a walk behind his house. He called it the sand walk. And if he had a problem, he'd go out to it and he'd stack stones. It, each time he'd go around, he'd knock one of the stones off and he would be like, is this a four stone problem? Is this a three stone problem? <laughs> really? And, and that, that way he didn't have to mark time. Every time he came around, he knocked it and then he didn't have to think about it again, but he would walk in order to solve a problem. And this wow. is just something that's been understood for so long. Steve Jobs was a big walker, right? Yep, absolutely. Took he a lot did, of walking He did like meetings. the walking meetings. Yeah, um, that was he was famous for that. Yeah, walking is, it's a really powerful thing. I, it, when we're trying to be intellectual, we separate it out from our bodies. And it's a mistake. In order to really hypercharge the brain, bringing the physicality in is incredibly important. And yes, it's good to work out and that's, it's healthy, but trying to find a way to integrate it into our day-to-day throughout the day is really powerful and really helpful. Right. So this has been awesome, but, but we're winding it down. Yeah. What are you working on next? What do you have in the hopper? Anything we should know about? I have been working in Southern for a while. That is, it's kicking my ass. Sorry, I'm allowed to say that. You can say whatever <laughs> you want. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was, I've been giving talks for a long time. Some years I give more, some years I give less. But one of the interesting things is at the end of the talk, for about five minutes, I'll start to talk a little bit about spirituality or meaning in life, purpose in life. And it's the one time during the talk that all the phones go down, all the fidgeting stops, everybody looks up. And it, it's, it happens without fail. And it's fascinating to me because I'll be talking for close to an hour about all kinds of things that supposedly relate to the work these people are doing. But it doesn't stop them from being completely distracted in the way that people are. I don't take it personally. I get it, but it's something I've noticed. And suddenly that all goes away. And what dawned on me was that we live in this data-driven age, this science age. And yet there's still this yearning for how do I find meaning in my life? How do I find purpose? Is, am I connected to something bigger? What does that mean? We've knocked organized religion to the curb in modern Western societies. I'm all in favor of that. No problems. But we haven't replaced it. And there's this emptiness. One of the things I like to point out is that Rumi is the best-selling poet in the West. He's this 18th century crazy mystic, right? Why is he selling so well? There's this hunger. And so what I've been working on is trying not to answer, but to give some guidance for people who are sitting with the question, how do I engage with meaning, purpose, spirit, the divine, call it whatever you want, the universe. How do I engage with that without demanding data, without demanding scientific proof, without demanding the neuroscience prove it? Which is a really tricky thing. I I think that's a really tricky question for all of us who live in this day and age in this part of the world. If you listen to Arthur Brooks, people that have some type of spiritual belief are happier. I personally, my theory on this is, to your point, there's been this huge decline in organized religion attendance across the West. In the U.S. in particular, it's very acute. It's almost like just crazy how low the population numbers are compared to 50, 100 years ago. There does seem to be a yearning, and I think it's a the way I look at it is it's akin to why zombie movies are so popular, because I think we all yearn for a time before technology where there aren't, where we don't know what's going to happen, right? And not everything is explained. And in this world that we live in, I think mystery is really compelling because we can find out pretty much anything now, and we found it to be very unsatisfying. Yes, exactly. I think that's precisely the point. There's this yeah. deep dissatisfaction. And we were promised jetpacks and instead we got Snapchat. And they, this sucks. There's got to be more out there. Yeah. And but we but in the midst of this dissatisfaction, we distrust the potential answer. Whatever and, and that answer can be whatever to anyone, right? I'm very I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to be like, oh, it, it your answer's over here. <laughs> but even the path towards that answer, the individual path towards that answer. Is something we distrust. And so we're stuck between dissatisfaction and distrust. 
And so I've been trying to, I've been working on a book that perhaps helps lessen the distrust. Good luck with that. Yeah, thank you. It's That's a lot of work. That'll be good, though. I look forward to it. Your stuff's really compelling, so I'm oh, sure it'll be I good. appreciate that. Thank you. Kind of- We're bumping up against 50 minutes here, yeah. which has been terrific. If people are interested in connecting with you, learning more about your work, or having you do a consulting gig or a coaching or a speaking opportunity, what's the best way for them to engage? Just reach out. It's judapollock.com. You can send me an email from the website. Keep the website pretty simple, just because... There's no reason to inundate and overwhelm. Just try and get to the essence, get to the point. But feel free to email me. I will see it and get back to you. Yeah, we'll provide a link as well. And a question that we end the show with for everybody is, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? That's a good question. I have the good fortune of living out here in Taos, New Mexico. Just every time I get to look out of the mountain, Taos Mountain is incredibly picturesque. Mountain, uh, depending on who you ask, people will tell you it's a very powerful mountain. Take that to mean what you will. But it's just framed in such a way with the valley. It's really gorgeous and it's so much bigger and so much older <laughs> than I or anyone else will ever be. There's a way of, it's a real perspective giver. Um, so I think just getting to just look at it when I'm not busy well, fighting the weeds, remembering to look up at the mountain and be like, yeah, you know what? It's all good. I love it. I love it. Judah, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with the book and all the work you're doing. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.